When I was a young driver, nothing terrified me more than approaching an intersection. Now, there were some intersections that were just fine. You know, the regular traffic lights, I, I, I pretty much had those down. Four-way stops were a little bit more daunting, as I had to, if both of us got there at the stop sign at the same time, I had to figure out, okay, which one goes first. Then there were times when the lights were flashing at intersections that I, I, I it really kind of threw me for a loop. Okay, what do I do now? Okay, yeah, I think I, I treat this as a four-way stop, and then other people weren't treating it as a four-way stop, and I'm thinking, what do I do now? But I think nothing really absolutely terrified me more than approaching an intersection where the lights were working and there was a police officer present. And this is why. So I approach the line and the light is red and the officer's doing this. And in my teenage mind, I'm thinking, is he trying to trick me? Does he want me to go through that red light and he's going to go, blow his whistle and tell me to pull over. He knows I'm a teen driver. He's motioning me through. He's going to make me run a red light, and then he's going to give me a ticket. So this is what's going on in my head as I'm reaching this moment of indecision. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And he's more fervently waving me on. And the person behind me who's been a seasoned driver is blowing their horn. Go, go. And I'm conflicted, and I don't know what to do until finally the officer points at me and blows the whistle and tells me to go on. And then I proceed through. It takes a few of these times for me to get used to the idea that when you approach an intersection, whether the light is green or red, you follow what the officer is telling you to do. And I think about that when I read this passage because there are areas, and we have a, we have a slide here that has a chart on it when you get to that slide. There are areas right there in the center that are moral issues where these are intersections where Christ is not going to stand in the middle of that intersection and say, okay, adultery, it's fine. Go ahead, blow on through the light. We're good. Don't worry about the stoplight. He's not going to do that. There are areas that are essentials. Deity of Christ, my deity, nope, nope, don't worry about it. Just blow on through the light. It's okay. It's good. Move on. Move along. Those are not areas where Christ is going to be present moving people through lights that he has constructed. These are moral points. These are non-negotiables. These are unmovables. These moral laws reflect God's character. And yet there are issues of conscience that we, that we brand non-essentials. Those distinctives of particular denominations. Do you, do you dunk with a lot of water? Do you sprinkle on heads? Do you baptize babies? Not for salvation. Or do you baptize believers? Those are, are the distinctives. And then you move out to these disputables. These are the kind of things that, that my father, growing up in uh, the, the rural south, wrestled with when he could watch baseball on the Sabbath, but not play baseball on the Sabbath. And he didn't understand why. And he couldn't go swimming with girls. I don't know if there were some religious cooties or... Or what it was, but that was the standard. But there are issues of drinking. Not to get drunk, that would go right there into the essentials. But issues of, of the, whether it's permissible to drink 
or to not drink, or whether it's permissible to drink and to wave at your Baptist brothers in the, in the liquor store or not. These are issues over which we have stumbled and wrestled and had issues and not noted. These are the disputable issues. These are issues of conscience. And what I believe that 1 Corinthians 8 is telling us this morning is that Christ is the Lord of these areas of conscience. These are intersections in which at some point Christ says, stop to some and go to others. And the problem with that is the similar problem they were having here in Corinth. That's a little too loosey-goosey for them to really understand at this point. Couldn't there just be a formula? Couldn't there just be a hard and fast rule? I really believe, and it is my firm conviction, that Christ gives us areas of conscience for a reason. And that is to remind us that we are in a relationship with him in which we are growing and learning. And his Holy Spirit, by and with the word, illumines our hearts to these areas as we grow and mature in our faith. And he directs our paths. But he means us to wrestle. And the reason he means us to wrestle is so that we'll grow stronger in our faith. And I believe that's what's happening here. Verse 6 states, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. For whom we exist. We serve a God that These issues are for the purpose of glorifying him. That's what that bit of theology there means. We were made for him. We belong to him. And what we do reflects our heart towards him. So these issues, as we are growing in them, reflect our growth in grace before the Lord. Which is why we must submit to the Lord's to Christ's lordship over issues of conscience. Again, not the essentials that he said, look, these are the hard and fast rules I've set down. These reflect who I am and they do not change. But just as he told Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter goes, Lord, he comes to the intersection and says, Lord, (laughs) no, you're that cop trying to get me to go through the intersection and give me the ticket. I'm not doing it. I haven't eaten anything unclean. And he says, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. He's telling him he he fulfilled the ceremonial law and he is releasing him in freedom to eat of that which was unclean before. So Peter wanted to submit to just a formula. But Christ called him to that relationship. So we must submit to Christ's lordship over issues of conscience. Why? Why must we? I think that we see two reasons here. And the first one is because issues of conscience can stoke the fires of our pride. Look at verses 1 through 6, particularly 4 through 6. That's the theological core. The theological core of this passage is in 4 through 6. And it says this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. 
He's standing it. They're just little stone statues. In the grand scheme of things, they don't exist. And that there is no God but one. He acknowledges the fact that what they call gods are probably demons. But if they're eating meat that has been offered to an idol, secondhand, they're not worshiping that God. They are eating of the meat, and it's just meat, and it doesn't defile them. And he says, the problem with that is that not everybody's there yet. Not everybody's to that point of understanding. They've come out of idol worship here in Corinth, and they're really concerned that they're going to be defiling God by doing this. Now, Paul lays down what he, believe, what he knows to be true, but he does so with compassion and not arrogance. And the problem in Corinth is that the people who already embraced this were the people laying on their horns behind the people who, were, who felt a, a conviction not to eat of these meats. And they are honking their horn, saying, go through the intersection. And Paul is calling that out as arrogance and pride. Because not only are they bullying their brothers, they're drawing attention to their own freedom and saying there's something great about them for having discovered this truth on their own. So the first thing that they do when they hear this message read aloud, I imagine, was say, and they look at the person across the room that's not allowed to eat, and they're like, told you. And in doing so, it reveals their heart. It reveals the arrogance and pride, and what they're truly worshiping is not God. They're not submitting to Jesus Christ and his lordship. They're submitting to their own authority and their own pride. And there's no measure of humility here. Because Paul says here that you might be right in your knowledge, but your knowledge is incomplete. I remember when I was in college, um, they had the C.S. Lewis lectures that came through town. And one year they got Douglas Gresham, who was C.S. Lewis's stepson. And I don't remember what the issue is. I just re- it's been so long, and I am so old, and it's been so long since college. I don't remember what the issue was. But all I remember is sitting there, and there, it was quite clear by the responses of the, of the individuals in that room. You had some very progressive-leaning Christians and some very non-progressive-leaning Christians. He would say something, and I would see, because I, I recognized a couple of pastors I would, I would brand as more progressive, and some I would... I would brand as more conservative. And when he hit a point that, that the progressives would resonate with, they'd clap. When he hit a point where the conservatives would, they would, laugh, they would clap. And he got to a point where he noticed it. And he called everybody out. He says, something to the effect of, I see you here want to make Jack the hero of whatever your particular belief is. Well, let me tell you something right now. Jack would absolutely hate that. And he called him to account. And he laid him out. And I think that's what's going on here in Corinth. You've got people who are hearing what they want to hear and they're cheering, but they're doing so out of pride and they're doing so out of arrogance. And what Paul is calling them to account is he's calling them back to humility. He's calling him back to love. In verses 1 through 3, he says this. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Knowledge that isn't truly under Christ's lordship leads to arrogance and pride. Say that I view my freedom as to do whatever as something I have wrestled with God over. And I look at the person who doesn't have that freedom. In my heart, if in my heart I judge them and belittle them and make them feel small, I'm sinning against my Lord. And I'm sinning the sin of pride. Because of this, when Christ came to me, when Christ found me, I, was, I had all kinds of crazy beliefs that weren't in line with Scripture. And there were a whole lot of Christians that, that were bearing with me at the moment, understanding that I was young and weak in my faith, that I was approaching that intersection and not knowing what to do. And instead of blaring their horns, they sat down with me, they would talk with me, they would engage with me in a, in a dialogue over Scripture, all the while not giving me the answer to the equation, but letting me wrestle. Because they knew that their answer might not be what the Lord had for me at the moment. Because you never know what someone's dealing with. You never know someone's heart on these issues. But just as Christ showed love to me, by coming to me in my ignorance and walking with me through those things, so I am to show love to my brother and my sister by not belittling them. When I have a theological grasp of the issue and looking down over my nose at them, but walking with them, praying with them, and respecting the conviction that God has laid on their heart. You know, you have Pharisees that can be Pharisees of legalism, and then you have Pharisees that can be Pharisees of licentiousness, or Pharisees of progression. I remember uh, years ago in a church, and this is a minor thing, but it was a church where they really espoused come as you are. Come as you are. Come as you are. Don't, you don't have to dress up in, in fancy clothes. We just want you here to worship the Lord. And so you know, they, they really tried to say, however the Lord leads you, you come and, and join us. And I remember for a couple weeks in a row, I felt like I should be wearing a tie. And I wore a tie the first week, and I kind of got some weird looks. I wore a tie the next week. I got more weird looks. And then someone came to me and made fun of me and said, what's up with the tie? Why are y'all dressed up? I said, I thought this was a place where you could come where, as you are. And the conviction that God's laid on my heart this morning is that I feel like I need to be dressed this morning, dressed up a little bit more this morning. Is that okay? <laughs> See, these issues are delicate. And we don't realize sometimes how we drift into kind of a form of our own legalism 
and place these expectations on other believers. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. But the second reason why we need to submit to the Lord in issues of conscience is because issues of conscience can crush the spirit of our brothers. Look at verses 7 through 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There you are, securing in your, being secure in your conviction of conscience regarding that particular intersection. If it leads to blaring the horn at someone else, you're not exemplifying love. That's what Paul's going to talk about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he talks about being a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. Coming after them, coming after them, blaring that horn, are you stupid? Go on through the intersection. But that's not demonstrating a love. And what it does is it, it may cause our brother, who's not where Christ wants him to be. Christ might be clearly doing this to our brother and saying, no, I don't care if the light is green. I need you to stop. There's a danger ahead for you. And you see this in people's pasts, or the Lord knows their heart better than we do. He knows what they're struggling with. He knows what their conviction is. He knows whether they're doing this out of love for him or a sense of legalistic perfectionism. And while we can address the legalistic perfectionism, if someone's motivated out of love and they're doing this for Christ and we're pushing them through the intersection, we could be pushing them right into the wreck of their faith. For years, I was a youth pastor, and for years, my students had no idea where I stood on the issue of drinking. And they'd ask, and they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm not going to tell you. Why? Because I want you to own what you believe before God in Scripture. That's what I want for you. I don't want you to either not drink or drink because I do. Because that's solving the equation for you. You're not showing your work as your friendly math teacher used to tell you to do. And in showing your work and really wrestling over that issue, you're growing deeper and deeper in your faith. It's so easy for us to want to answer those questions. Now, I'll be happy to talk about them theologically over an issue. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is, that's what Paul does at the beginning of the, of the chapter. He lays out the theology. But he doesn't do so in a way that makes the decision necessarily for them. He tells them, look, whether you, drink, whether you eat or don't eat, that doesn't make you better before the Lord. What matters is that you're following after Christ. He goes on in verse 10 and says, For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? 
And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So if in my freedom, if I'm like Mel Gibson up there yelling, Freedom! And really pushing along someone who does not yet truly have the conviction it is okay to do this or they shouldn't do this. What I'm doing is I'm crushing them. And if I'm crushing them to bowing to the God of my own freedom rather than the Lordship of Christ, I'm sinning against them. These aren't easy issues. These are hard. They're hard for a reason. Because not only is the wrestling with the issues a sign of how we're maturing in Christ, it's how we handle our freedom in Christ represents how our heart is dealing and how mature our heart is in Christ. Do we truly like the mathematician who's sitting next to the student, let them wrestle over the problem a little while? Or do we just jump in and answer, just provide all the answers for them? I love that old illustration of the boy who saw the caterpillar struggling in the cocoon. It's just one of my favorite illustrations because it's just so true. And with good intentions, he got his play scissors out and he goes over And he helps out the butterfly by cutting the cocoon open. And sure enough, the butterfly pops out easily. But then he's he's crushed to see that this butterfly cannot fly. And he asks his father, why is it that the butterfly can't fly? And he tells him, it's the wrestling to get out of the cocoon that prepares his wings to soar. It is so easy for us to see someone who's wrestling over these issues and want to give them the right answer and cut through all of that cocoon, but we're short-circuiting what the Lord is doing in their lives. And so it takes a measure of wisdom on a believer's part, on a mature believer's part, not to lay on the horn, but to wait for that person who's still sitting there trying to understand, do I listen, do I watch the officer motion me through? Do I stop? What do I do? And encourage rather than blare the horn. In submitting to Christ's lordship, we ultimately remember that not we, but he is their master, which brings us to verse 13. It says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I think the question that we should all ask ourselves this morning, and, and, and I would wrestle over this because freedom really pulls me, draws my heart. Am I willing to put whatever it is away if it meant winning the heart of my brother. See, because at the end of this passage, it's Paul talking to the Corinthians, talking to the Corinthians, 
talking to the Corinthians, and then suddenly he shifts in verse 13. And he says, not, therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, you should never eat, lest you make your brother stumble. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He's personalized this. Paul, who knows he is free to eat, is the same Paul that restrained his freedoms in front of some people that he would either win their hearts to Christ or that he would help them grow deeper in their love for Christ and deeper in their relationship with Christ. Where are you this morning? We can teach them truth. We can teach the, the weaker brother truth from a passage like this. Just, just like sitting down with compassion. Sitting down with mercy. And walking step by step with them through the issue. Or, we can be a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We can be that honking horn behind them. What intersections are you free to pass through this morning? How is Paul, on behalf of Jesus Christ, calling you to show a measure of humility and patience with those who aren't where you are yet? It's a matter of prayer this Lord as we uh, this this morning as we go before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many issues over which we are free. And there's so many brothers and sisters who not out of legalism, not out of a want to jump into the middle of the intersection and tell everybody what to do, but have a true concern. Aren't where we are. Lord Jesus, give us the spirit of the humility not to get out of our car, to go into the middle of the intersection and tell them either to go through or not to go through. Help us to remember that you are Lord. And over the areas that you've said are areas of conscience, not moral issues, but areas of conscience. May you convict us and help us to remember you are ultimately the Lord over those. For us and for our brothers. And that our job is not to keep our eyes on what they're doing, but what you're calling us to do. Give us humility, give us wisdom, and give us grace because we need it. We cannot do this without your Holy Spirit working in and through us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.